Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm with architect Jared Haberfield. I've been following Jared's work for quite some time now, and I just went to see an amazing project that I wasn't expecting. Welcome to the program, Jared. Thank you, Stephen. Jared, let's talk about uh, Jared's director of Molecule. Uh, uh, an architectural practice, design practice in Melbourne. Let's start with my latest find that I was so excited with, and it was one, shown on one of my architectural tours, an apartment in the eastern suburbs. And it was kind of, to be quite honest, Jared, when you said you were going to show me this apartment, I thought, oh, it's a bit ugly. It's kind of 90s Georgian. and But then when I went inside, I was really blown away. Tell me a little bit about this apartment. The apartment was a misnomer from the outset, as I understand it. Our clients bought it quite recently, but it was built um, in the 90s, as you say correctly, and the top of the building, which was a full floor, was um, designed in a completely different way to all of the other apartments um, within the building, of which I think there are 12. So this is the penthouse. It's a full floor. It's got terraces to the, um, the two long sides, which is the northern and the southern elevations, and... We were very fortunate to inherit all of the things that you can't change that need to be really um, taking you in the right direction from the outset. So very good ceiling heights, which are um, uncommon and, and becoming even less common. So um, we've got three metre ceilings throughout and a great deal of access to natural light. And the floor plate was slightly unusual in a few places, so that was why we were brought in, was really to focus on making the flow around the floor um, plate just a bit more natural. But as I say, we inherited lots of things that were great already in terms of the scale of the rooms. and um, So it was a very exciting project to work on from the outset and made more exciting by incredibly trusting but learned clients, which is a winning combination for me always. Um, you know, you, you always have sort of a continuum of engagement with clients and which is sort of somewhere between being too engaged and being disinterested. And these guys you would locate right at the centre where they were so interested in what we were doing and um, really understood the value of what we were doing. But every time that we got to a situation where our professional expertise was sought, they were very happy to defer to us. And you know, the number of times, even during construction, when I would run um, a scenario past them and ask what their preference was and they would just always say without fail whatever you think and that's a very rare situation and something that we certainly don't take for granted um, so they, um, they're very learned clients as I say they've got an extraordinary collection of um, art and design lots of furniture pieces as well from New Zealand which is their homeland and Australia where they now live so um, the house was always designed as some kind of a well-behaved backdrop to this amazing collection. Because I think I remember when I ran my architectural tour, um, the owner said, look, we don't want overbearing architecture. We really want it to be pared back. It's really about the art yes. and the spaces. That's right. So we, um, and that's something that's very close to Molecule's ethic as well. So, um, you know, Molecule as a practice is always... Um, such a strong believer that architecture doesn't always have to be at the forefront and doesn't always have to be speaking in a very loud voice. So to imbue this interior with a very quiet, almost monastic um, essence was was really um, a very nice discipline to have to run through the whole design process. And anywhere that we could 
um, remove a material um, from the materials palette to keep that really um, pared back and, um, and straightforward. Any time that we could remove a detail, you know, we were working hard all the time to do just enough that everything worked perfectly and looked really wonderful. So we worked very hard on proportion and, um, and it was still a very carefully detailed build. But none of those details are expressed in a way that really grabs your eye because the idea is that in every room that your eye path is actually um, having a great time moving over the artworks on the walls and the sculpture and the furniture. Um, Jared, when you look at a project like this, and obviously the art collection's extraordinary. I mean, people like Tracy Moffat and wonderful, wonderful uh, artists from Australia and New Zealand. Do you kind of look through the whole art collection before you start a project and then you have very set ideas or you think of where things will go because there is so much art? How do you, how do you start that process? So we, um, we didn't need to play a particularly active role in this project in terms of how the collection would be distributed because that's something about which our clients, in this case, are very expert and um, he does all of the hanging himself. So, um, you know, I think it's very, um, it's a very nice thought. It's probably the urban equivalent of doing the gardening, but when someone that has a very high-powered executive life spends their weekends drilling holes in walls and making sure that their, you know, 24 Tracy Moffat photographs are perfectly aligned, I can really, it sort of feels like an urban equivalent of, you know, the lawns. <laughs> um, but, so we didn't, in this case, need to um, be too prescriptive in terms of how the collection was distributed throughout the apartment. And the thing that I enjoy is that whenever I'm back there, which is sort of um, every three or four months, often something has been rehung. You know, often they will have bought something new, and so that goes on to a, you know, that sort of gets pride of place potentially, and something else gets moved. And so what I love and am inspired by the most with this project is the degree to which the collection is this living, breathing thing, and it doesn't operate um, like some kind of a static museum where things aren't part of their lives. And so I think the thing that really knocks people out, and certainly that was the feeling that I got from all of your tour participants when, when you brought them through, was that it's very uncommon to see a home environment where the line between the art and the sculpture and the furniture is sure. so blurred that you can't really decide what's more important, the sofa that you watch the television on or the Ronnie Van Hout sculpture that's next to it. And the Ronnie Van Hout sculpture, for those who don't know his work, in this instance it's a, a young boy who's uh, suspended over two wooden chairs and he almost looks like he's elevate or he's... Um, What's the word? Um, yes, levitating. Levitating above the ground. Uh, quite extraordinary place just between two living areas, so it's that unexpected. Yes, and, um, you know, that was where it was a, a really fun collaboration when we were working through, you know, one um, in one situation, for example, there's um, a pivot door which takes you through into the guest powder room, which we've done as a completely clear glass door. That doesn't give you a view of the of the water closet itself, but it does give you a view into the sort of antechamber where you um, wash your hands and where the mirror is. And that was just because it gave us another opportunity to see an artwork from a different angle. So at every point, we were trying to find interesting and unexpected ways for this for this art collection to really become part of the fabric. It's also an example, and I and uh, when I showed my partner the the apartment that we'd be going through on this particular occasion she said oh Stephen you should be showing great things and I said well I think it's actually a very good example of 
people looking for something quite severe, because I think it is quite severe, and we don't live on the outside of a building. It's actually such a great space inside. Does it really matter that it's got brown bricks and Georgian-style windows? Right. Does it matter? Mm. I don't know. I don't think it does. Look, I don't think it does, and I do think that... Um, I mean, it certainly supports something that we believe very strongly in the practice, which is that, you know, architecture as as an end in itself is, of course, it's a very you know important and worthwhile endeavour. But in the end, mostly architecture does provide a container for life to to go on within, whether it's work life in the case of a workplace um, or home life in the in the case of a house. And so. For me, this makes a really compelling argument for that because, as you say, from the outside, there's nothing remarkable about the building at all. No. In fact, it's probably a building type of which we'd be pretty critical, typically. And yet, so much love has been put into the way that the interior is treated that it does sort of transcend its its roots and become this other world. The other thing, before we move on to another project, is the kitchen looks like it's 90s. I think it is the original kitchen. Correct. It's fine. It's fine. It, you know, we do have an obsession in the design world, that if it's not the latest, just rip it out and remove. But, look, the clients have got a very fine eye, so have you, but you've said, look, keep the kitchen, it's fine. Why put the money into a kitchen when you can put the money onto a new sculpture or a new piece of art? I think as well, what's interesting about this house, because, um, you know, the artworks have been collected over a 25-year period and so has the furniture, and so, therefore, it does hover in time. You know, if you were to show anybody photographs of this apartment and ask when they thought it had been done, in inverted commas, you, it would be impossible to put a date on that, and that was certainly our, the, you know, the way that we wanted to come at the, um, the renovation also. So I guess that helps things like the 90s kitchen remaining, because it doesn't feel like, a, like an apartment that has been done in the last year or two, because it's not filled with fabulous new things that have just been launched in Milan, and you know, it's got a whole different spirit, yeah. and so that gives it a timelessness that would be pretty hard to achieve otherwise. The um, uh, this was another case. Um, it was a house. It was your own house from memory. That's right. Um, and again, a type of house that I was surprised you actually bought because it was kind of faux French, which is really not my thing. Uh, and I thought, what have you done? But it won an award. You redid the interior. It really is quite. Um, exceptional but from the outside i'd have to say it was quite specific yeah look it was and um and you know it was a it was a particular um sort of moment um for us it's certainly a a type of house that um i wouldn't choose to live in again but um we bought that house based on a commercial decision and and we um due to the the scale of the um the interior spaces really felt that we could make a few changes for quite a lot of benefit and that was probably the first time that we really started to explore this idea of the Alice in Wonderland you know down the rabbit hole thing where you can walk through the front door of a house and almost immediately be transported to a world that feels a long way from where you've just come from so that was probably the project it was very early days for Molecule you know we were we founded the practice um the three of us um, from New Zealand. The three of us from New Zealand. So it's me, Anya Despar, and Richard Fleming. We formed the practice in 2010. This project was completed in 2011. So it was one of our really early projects. And um, as you say, it did win some awards and it was widely published and it really captured um, some people's imaginations, which was great. But um, I guess in terms of the legacy that it's left in the way that we work, it did just really teach us that um, 
if you can create a really distinctive immersive environment within a building you can create quite a transportative effect. This is another project that I um, haven't been fortunate enough to write on but it's a, a commercial project, an office in the city, correct? That's right. And it is very much based, again, on an art collection. Yeah, You seem to be <laughs> the architects to go to when art's involved. Well, it's funny because in preparation for this um, conversation, I did go through the body of our work, and I was really interested to see that um, in almost every project, art plays some kind of a critical role. Certainly it's a, it's a personal passion of mine, and um, the, the acquisition... Um, of art is something that my partner and I spend a great deal of time and effort doing. So it's very close to our hearts. But I think we, um, you know, one project after another, we've really realised that at the point that the builder finishes, which is the stage at which a lot of architects would say that their job was done, we always feel like we've provided an envelope into which... Um, into which things can fit, but that our job isn't quite done yet. And we've been very fortunate to have the support of clients to keep us involved in these projects, not only to um, to do the architecture and the interiors, but then to continue um, with what we term art direction, which is the placement of furniture. Um, purchasing art as well? Purchasing art. Um, and in this case, which is a, um, a commercial fit out in 101 Collins, the big tower there, one of the directors of the practice had a very large art collection. He was very passionate about that and was happy to lend some of that collection to the business. And we just felt that it was such a wonderful opportunity to um, to create an environment that felt um, at right angles to what you might expect from a very clinical funds management environment. And this really personalised it and humanised it. And, um, you know, it, it's become the... Um, the fulcrum around which the entire space really pivots. But it's also, with this space, you also created, rather than just rectilinear spaces, quite predictable, the centrepiece is an angular, mirrored wall divider Yes, that kind of really throws you around in that space as well and maximises the use of art. That's right. So we, um, you know, the the idea here was... Um, was to have one key device that was inserted into the space that could um, achieve many things at once. And so this was a long corridor which basically took guests or visitors from the point of entry along a corridor that fed each of the meeting spaces with the boardroom at the end with only one window um, and the natural light and the view obviously only coming from that point. So the idea of this angled mirrored wall, which is actually just a mirrored film applied onto um, standard glass partitioning, was that views and light would be bounced the entire way through the space. And so what could have been, as you say, a very generic, almost entirely internal environment became kaleidoscopic and quite rich and, you know, it's very unexpected. What am I looking at here, Joe? So this is an apartment that's just been finished. Um, it's a penthouse in a tall residential tower at Port Melbourne. And I just included these images because um, we call this the Pier Penthouse because it overlooks Station Pier, where the spirit of Tasmania comes and goes from. Um, but, you know, once again, the, the environment that's been created there is very deliberately um, monochromatic and very carefully detailed. And then the idea is that anywhere that art is introduced, that it becomes the real personality of the room. So this is a beautiful series of Lydia Wegner photographs um, 
She's a wonderful young artist who's represented by Arc One Gallery. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're always inspired to be finding art that's just um, really perfect for a particular project. And I think a lot of people um, don't realise that commercial galleries are just like shops. Anyone can walk inside. Everything's for sale. There are things of incredibly diverse price points. And, you know, art doesn't need to be something that's only for rich people. But it is something that people are very uh, nervous about. Very, very nervous. nervous. Yes. It's, they, they feel it's out of their depth. They feel as if they can't possibly uh, go into a, a, a gallery, as um, uh, my mother used to say, not for the likes of us. Right. <laughs> uh, and I've met several people who would love uh, to, to know more about art, but they somehow are nervous about it. Yes. They don't have the confidence. And architects generally, you know, some of them are interested in art. You are obviously particularly passionate about art. But how do you get someone engaged? What's the, what do you normally do when, you, when someone knows nothing about art? Do you take them to galleries? Yeah, or do we you... do. So we, we typically try to understand people's aspirations um, so that we are only putting work in front of them that is empowering for them rather than disempowering. You don't want to be trying to ask clients with their first art purchase to be making a huge leap because value in any sense is such a subjective thing. And so, um, you know, $500 for an artwork might seem like very good value to one person and not to another. And then, of course, that just keeps going up in multiples. You can find excellent local work, um, you know, for under $5,000, under $10,000. But you can also find really important work that's from artists who are in national collections and institutional collections for, you know, $100,000 and more. So I think the first exercise is just understanding people's appetite um, for the acquisition mm-hmm. itself and then to just start understanding the sorts of things that might drive someone's hunger or um, or what their susceptibility is to various art forms because, of course, art comes in so many forms from highly abstract to highly figurative um, and then we have photography, and now we have video, which is really, I think, excitingly starting to really gain And photography is really, for people who haven't got a huge budget, photography is a really... Absolutely. Um, ...a very accessible way and yes. a very affordable way to get into the art Absolutely. scene and start building on photography, because I think it's a bit like contemporary jewellery. Right. I think it is moving. It's absolutely moving, and, um, you know, we're always helped with photography because the works are typically additioned, so the artist can sort of divide what they need to get back from that work across five or seven editions, depending um, on the work in question, so that makes it more affordable often. Um, But I think the other thing that's really attractive about photography is um, the feeling that um, you have such a finite relationship with it because photography typically presents itself as a fact and I think that gives people confidence in the way that sometimes painting, particularly abstract painting, can feel much more nebulous and people might feel that they like it but then they start questioning why and does it really matter if they like mm. it, is it, you know, is it art, all of those, you know, and all those um, comments you hear about my child could have done this and, you know. Yeah. So um, I think photography is one of those things where, look, certainly we mostly walk around with some kind of a smartphone in our pocket and we could all be taking photographs too. But photography recently has really had quite an upsurge in terms of the inventiveness of people's Mm. practice. And I think there's some excellent work around. And as you say, um, quite rightly, you know, often the the price of the framing is equivalent to the price of the work. You know, they're they're really not expensive. It's a huge impact. Huge impact. Um, Jared, you you tend to work on quite a lot of projects now. I mean, you do. I've just seen a winery that you worked on. You've done houses. You've done hospitality, penthouses, bespoke houses. 
what are the things you're trying to do more of? What? Oh, such an interesting question. We, we often wonder um, how this came about. Certainly when we started the practice, we always said we wanted to be known for a client type rather than a project type. The client being um, a person or a, um, or a group of people who really believed that design was a worthwhile um, thing because we have found historically that if you don't have at least that as a basis, then every other conversation is somehow tested. So um, we've been fortunate that almost in all cases that is our client type and hopefully we're, um, we're doing that trust mm. justice. But also we're a practice formed by three people and you know we're three individuals. We certainly, certainly have a shared um, ethic in terms of what we're seeking in design and the way that we, that we like to work, but we are three individuals with very individual tastes. So maybe that also feeds into the diversity of the projects. But to answer your question in terms of the work that um, we're wanting to do more of, I think um, our, our passion for immersive environments continues. So any opportunity, whether it is in a domestic environment or a commercial environment or a hotel environment, which we're starting to do a little bit of, hospitality continues as a strong strain in the practice. Um, Any time that we have the opportunity to create an environment from beginning to end where the big ideas are conceived right from day one and the very fine details are still able to be controlled by us at the end, that's the thing I think that really inspires us because we're able to create environments that are really distinctive and therefore memorable and that feels like you've been able to create a place and place making is something that's spoken about a lot um, at every scale of design whether at urban design or or you know all the way through to architecture but I think at the point that you've created an environment that feels distinctive and memorable and unlike something else that isn't derivative that doesn't remind you of something else you've seen then you've been able to create a moment for someone which they then sort of take with them and that feels culturally like a really worthwhile thing. Jared, finally, you know, you've been here, um, well, you've established the practice in 2010. Uh, you've done quite a lot in a short time. Are you getting requests now from New Zealand clients to say, look, why aren't you doing something close to home? We have spoken to a couple of New Zealand clients this year, actually. Um, and it's something that we would that we would love to be doing more of because um, even though a great deal of our practice history has been in Australia, you know, we are three New Zealanders and there is something about your understanding of the place, particularly the landscape, I think, um, that really is in your blood and you, you can't unlearn that. So um, all going well, that's that's something that mm-hmm. continues to come onto our radar. Look, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I always find it pleasurable catching up with you, Jared. I think you always shed new light on things. Um, and thanks for coming in. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. You've been with Jared Haberfield on, uh, from Director of Molecule, one of three directors, and you've been listening to Stephen Crafty talking design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.